So please sit comfortably. And um, following from Gordon's request, the traditional request for some teaching, um, I will now offer some teaching, <laughs> some reflections on, on the practice of Dhamma. We've all of us um, gathered here for these days, days of practice, days of hearing teachings, contemplating teachings, applying them in our own lives. And we've just uh, completed the first day, almost completed the first day. And um, it can be interesting to um, observe uh, the changes that happen over the course of a time of retreat and just to notice how how you feel this evening as opposed to how you felt yesterday evening. And my sense is that everybody's much more settled in some ways, a sense of quiet in the room. I mean, you probably don't feel very quiet inside, but generally a sense of just everybody being a little bit more settled, having spent the day uh, in a very different way from the way that you would probably normally spend a day. Yes probably getting up earlier than you're used to getting up, uh, morning chanting, reflecting on the, on the, um, uh, on life really, on the noble truths this morning, and then uh, practicing meditation for you know, quite a number of hours, sitting and walking, and I know some of you are quite new to, to meditation, and yet it seems that everybody's been able to be quite settled, quite still, quite quiet, and um, you know, following the instructions as, as best they can. So, <clears throat> and obviously not talking, hardly at all. So that's, that's another uh, thing that's different from, from your daily life. And uh, no TV radio, newspaper, conversations about politics. <laughs> we have a fast, a, a political discussion fast. Uh, talk about Dhamma instead. Uh, Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha, which are very, very practical, um, very much about uh, how it is for each one of us. You know, what being a human being actually entails, what it involves. Um, interesting to hear about um, Shirley's friend's son, a young man, 30 years old, who just died unexpectedly. Um, very, very, very sad, very shocking you know, particularly for his family, very distressing. And uh, one can think, well, something's gone terribly wrong here. This shouldn't happen. People shouldn't die. And yet the Buddha really encourages us to, using a sort of slang expression, to get real about these things because, in fact, everyone dies. <laughs> you know, all of us, all of us are going to die. And this is uh, 
part part of the deal. Um, all of us, all of the people close to us, uh, some of them will die before us, some of them will die after us. And uh, you know, this, this, you know, when I say it like this, it it can be quite shocking. You know, you're sort of, oh my goodness. Um, but this is actually what what uh, what our life is about. Not that we um, should be spending the whole of our life dreading the moment of of the parting or dreading the moment of uh, death of a close person or friend, family member, and so on. We didn't. It's not that to make us um, miserable or um, depressed, but more just to. Um, bring a sense of um, the significance of our lives. And some people might think that you know, it's pointless, you know, born, live a bit and then die. What's the point of that? But um, one of the things that the Buddha said is there's an awful lot of good that can be done in a human lifetime. You know, we can do a lot of bad as well, a lot of harm as well, but we have, we have the choice. We can do an enormous amount of good and uh, bring a lot of happiness, a lot of joy to ourselves and, and to those around us, uh, if we choose to do so. And that's, that's a very wonderful thing. You know, just that in itself is very wonderful. Um, what's even more wonderful is the fact that we can, um, you know, if we, if we have the opportunity to hear these teachings, is that we can apply them in our own lives and we can actually... Um, see how they work to um, make life uh, less of a struggle. I mean, there's always going to be struggle of dull, grey, rainy November days, uh, getting cold, getting tired, getting hungry, getting uncomfortable. I mean, all of us you know, sitting on the floor, if you're not used to it, it, it gets uncomfortable. Even if you are used to it, you can get uncomfortable as your knees begin to pack up and things start to hurt, this is this is this is part of having a human body. This is what we can experience. This is what we can expect to experience. And all of the things that we need to do to just maintain this body, you know, to feed it and uh, bathe it, keep it clean, and just look after it in 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 different ways. And then if it gets sick, we have to care for it, take medicines, rest, and so on. And it can be easily harmed. You know, these bodies are quite vulnerable. There's an awful lot that can go wrong with a human body. <laughs> you know, all those different systems I talked about this morning. You know, this, uh, you know, it's quite remarkable that they, they do as well as they do, really, for as long as they do. Uh, and yet we, we tend to forget, we tend to just take them for granted, don't we? Uh, society actually, is, it's almost as though society, society can, the, the values of our society conspire to make us just forget uh, the reality of our lives. You know, <clears throat> we put an enormous amount of energy into trying to make the body look more beautiful. And um, uh, 
and we get worried when we when it starts you know sagging a bit and uh, not not looking quite so youthful and vigorous you know, these are things that can be really uh, disturbing to us you know, when the, when the, when the body changes as it gets older don't see so well don't hear so well these kind of things it's it's it can be um uh very distressing you don't remember things so well you know am i going senile these kind of concerns that can arise as we get older um but when we um really <clears throat> wake up to the fact of our human existence then in some way we're prepared you know we, we know we know what's involved we're wise and some t- people think that wisdom is about intelligence you know having a high iq uh, but a lot of very intelligent people are not wise <laughs> Uh, wisdom is much more well in my understanding wisdom, wisdom is much more about just understanding you know understanding life as it is understanding how to live as a human being with other human beings <clears throat> takes a lot of wisdom to live with other human beings in a in a peaceful harmonious cooperative way so until we really uh begin to understand uh, uh what it means to be a human being we'll inevitably get caught up in all kinds of struggles yeah. this word i t- talked about this morning dukkha the suffering you know, the struggle to to not get old the struggle to not get sick the struggle to not die to 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 to, to try and keep keep these inevitable um experiences to keep it at bay for as long as possible uh, so just like propping things up for as long as possible um <clears throat> it's not that we shouldn't uh try to make efforts to to keep the body healthy and reasonably comfortable reasonably supple uh it's not that we shouldn't exercise the mind uh you know to keep to keep it active to keep it bright um but we can do these things from a place of uh kindness and compassion rather than through a frantic effort to to keep it all together in a lot of um say like the cosmetic industry you know trying to encourage people to spend money to keep themselves looking beautiful a lot of that's actually very unkind it's not kind it's sort of saying to people you're not okay as you are it's not okay to get old you know you're getting old you better do something about it we'll give you a facelift for an awful lot of money easily done just a little tuck here tweak here you know prop it up here pad it out here you know we can make we can make you look beautiful forever and that's not kind that's exploiting our um lack of awareness really isn't it so we come here to um 
to begin our journey towards understanding, uh, towards wisdom, towards clear seeing, and towards learning how to live with these realities of our human life, our human lifetime. It's interesting, in the story of the life of the Buddha, he was, and some of you have heard this many times, but the Buddha was born as a prince into a ruling family, very um, uh, well-to-do family, and grew up in extremely uh, privileged circumstances. And so privileged that, um, and there was a prediction when he was born that he would either... um, either become a very successful ruler or he would become a, a Buddha. And Buddha, just so you know, Buddha just means awake, an awakened human being, uh, which by implication means a, a kind of religious person. And uh, his family, so the story goes, were very concerned about this. They didn't particularly want him to be a religious person. They wanted him to be a successful ruler. And so they, they they protected him from the harsh realities of human existence until at the age of 29, so the story goes, he finally um, found a way to uh, go out into the surrounding uh, city and countryside and began to, to notice Uh, notice old people. He'd never really seen somebody who was very, very old and, uh, you know, gray hair falling out, teeth falling out, not able to see or hear, bent over, wrinkled skin, not beautiful at all in one way. And uh, the young prince was was rather bemused, didn't really quite know what it was, (laughs) and said to his companion, well, what's that? And the companion said, well, that's an old person. Buddha said, oh, gosh. And he wasn't a Buddha then, the prince, Siddhartha Gautama. And then the next uh, uh, thing he saw was was somebody who was really, really sick, you know, body covered with sores, um, really disgusting state, filthy, vomiting, not, not in a good state at all, obviously in a lot of pain. And again, the prince said, What's that? He'd never seen anybody in such a state. And again, his companion said, well, you know, it's it's, it's a sick person. And then the most shocking of all, perhaps, was a a, a funeral procession with the corpse being carried to the the charnel ground. And uh, the prince said, what what on earth is that? And his friend said, well, that's a funeral. That person has died. He said, well, is that, does that happen to everybody? And his friend said, well, yeah, everybody dies, of course. And um, these these experiences were, were disturbed the prince very, very deeply. You know, it kind of made all, all the things, all the values he'd been grown up with seem totally meaningless. You know, what is the point of getting rich and powerful and famous and successful and having all these pleasures, if if it all ends in 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 this, you know, if if that's what's going to happen. 
Yeah, so he was he 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 was he was wise. He was prepared. He could he could really learn from these experiences. He really triggered something in him, a you know, capacity to to contemplate and and investigate his life. And the fourth messenger was of a religious person, somebody just sitting quietly uh, in meditation, you know, clearly aware of these realities of human existence, yet yet at ease. And this woke something. This was well, this was the final thing that uh, convinced the prince that he needed to go and find the way. Uh, to live peacefully and happily in the midst of these um, appalling um, conditions that he'd witnessed. <clears throat> and so he went and he spent six years practicing all kinds of awful austerities and uh, meditated for many, many hours, fasted until he was practically a skeleton and then realized that that didn't really he was no closer to understanding, no closer to a sense of peacefulness. And then, as I said earlier, on the full moon of May, um, came to a, a place of realization, of understanding. And then, uh, having been through a, fra a period of being rather reluctant to try to share his understanding with anyone, because he just... It seemed to him to so subtle, so profound. He didn't think that anybody would be interested in hearing his teaching, in, in applying it. Um, but fortunately for all of us, the Brahma god Sahampati uh, came and knelt down before him and said, Please, Lord, there are beings with just a little dust in their eyes who are struggling for want of hearing this truth that you've understood Please, out of compassion for them, teach the Dhamma. Explain what you've understood. And that's what the um, uh, request that uh, Anagarika Gordon made, uh, just recollecting that incident when the Brahma god Sahampati, way up in the Brahma Loka, the Brahma realms, the realms of the sort of uh, the highest uh, divine beings, uh, saw what was going on in the Buddha's in the in the Buddha's mind, and uh, quickly went and intervened and said, "Look, you know, this, this is a matter of urgency. You must, you must share this understanding." And so the Buddha finally agreed to teach, and his first students were the uh, other ascetic. Uh, practitioners who he'd be, who he'd been practicing with, he thought, well, they'll, they'll probably get it. If I explain it to them, they'll they'll probably get it. They've done enough work on themselves. If I just explain it, you know, if I if I point out um, what I've understood, they'll, they'll get it. And the first sermon that he gave gave was about the four noble truths that I I spoke a little about this morning. And then the second sermon, which in some ways. Uh, is equally significant, if not more so, is um, the discourse on the uh, characteristics, the Anatta Lakana Sutta. So the characteristics of our existence. <coughs> These important things that we need to know 
in order to free the heart from suffering, in order to apply ourselves in a way that will free the heart from suffering. When I say them, it sounds completely obvious in some ways. Uh, and yet, uh, it's a teaching that we have to contemplate, we have to investigate over and over again so it can actually sink into our bones. So the first one is that everything, everything, that's, everything that arises ceases. Everything that has come into being uh, changes and ceases. So we have these human bodies that have been born and you know, they're, they're continuously changing, actually. They're, they're, you know, we think it's a fixed, solid thing, but actually it's an a extremely a dynamic process. You know, all those systems that I spoke about, you know, the blood, the heart, the lungs, all of that is going on inside. We don't have to worry about it. It just happens, fortunately. Um, the breath comes and goes. Now, these things are continuously changing. We're born, we're very small, we grow up, we get bigger and bigger, and then we start getting smaller and smaller again, and then we die. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, 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 the constituents of the body, the earth, air, fire, and water, the basic elements, return. So earth goes back to earth, fire to fire, air to air, water to water. And this is what happens. So this body is part of a a, a dynamic process. So things change. Everything changes. From the, well, from these bodies, from things that arise in the mind, you know, our personality, and so on. These things are continuously changing. So the Buddha, he, he's, he's, his teach, I, mean, I love his teachings because they're very, they're rather analytical in some ways, but in a very simple way. So one of the things he speaks about is, the, well, we, we chanted it this morning. Let's see, the five, the five focuses of the grasping mind. Was is that the translation? Um, suffering. Anyway, the five khandhas. The five constituents, the five things that we tend to identify with as me. So form, the body, uh, feelings, so, so the body, and then the four aspects of mind. So form, and then feeling, um, the aspects of mind. So feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, these five things um, that make me what I think of as me. I'll talk about them some more another day, but right now we'll just keep it rather simple. So these things, the body, which I've already spoken about, and then these five aspects of mind, they're all continuously changing. You know, how long can you be angry and upset about something? You know, how long can you be um, glum? And sometimes when you're glum, it feels as though you can be glum forever, but nobody's glum forever. And if you don't, sorry, I should say glam or depressed or, or, or low, down, these things change. You can't stay happy forever either. You can't stay feeling on top of the world forever or successful forever. You know, things change. And 
over the course of this time of retreat, you have a chance to really observe how things change. And, and I really encourage you to contemplate that. It's a very important uh, insight. So things change. And because of this fact of change, they're not really satisfactory um, uh, uh, they can't provide a lasting sense of peace and satisfaction. So this word dukkha, this word dukkha means, it means struggle, it means stress, it means suffering. It also means just generally unsatisfactory. <laughs> they can't, they can't uh, satisfy us forever because they change. Even the most wonderful things, the most pleasant conditions, you might think, well, to feel joyful, that's a really wonderful thing. I want to feel joyful. Well, yes, it, it is lovely to feel joyful, but it changes. You can't, you can't stay joyful all the time. <laughs> you know, cause there can be a sense of, um, and there's a kind of spiritual joy that can, can be there all the time. But the, you know, what we tend to think of as happiness is, is, is very fickle. It, 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 it's unreliable. And obviously, the the um, unpleasant conditions they're 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 obviously also dukkha. They're unsatisfactory. You know, the things that we struggle with to get rid of. So everything is changing, and everything because of that. There's a sense of unsatisfactoriness about it. You know, because the good things, the things that we want to get hold of and keep, they don't last. And the bad things, well, they don't go away quickly enough. We, we we struggle with them to try and get rid of them, to change them. So there's nothing really in the world of worldly experience, in the world of conditioned, the conditioned phenomena, that can provide lasting peace and satisfaction. So those are two characteristics. A Nietzsche, no permanence. Things change, the fact of change, the fact of fluidity, dynamism in, in our existence. Dukkha, it's unsatisfactory, no lasting, uh, peaceful refuge, pleasant refuge uh, in the world of conditions. And then the third one, anatta. And this one is more, a little bit more difficult to, to grasp, to understand. Anatta means no inherent selfhood. So we tend to think, well, this is me. This is my body, this is my mind, this is me. I'm a person. <clears throat> and this is how we've, how we've been um, conditioned, how we've been programmed. And there is a kind of conventional truth to it. You know, I'm, this is me, this is Sister Chandasiri sitting here, um, Buddhist nun, uh, and I can think of lots of things I can say about myself. Uh, 72 years old. Wow. Things like that. <laughs> Scottish. <laughs> Theravada Buddhist. These are all labels, conventional truths. And we could say, well, that, that's, that's me, that's Sister Chandasiri. But when I'm actually sitting here quietly... All of these labels become totally irrelevant. I don't know if you notice that. Like today, when you're sitting quietly, 
I'm imagining you weren't thinking, well, you know, I'm I'm a man or I'm a woman. Uh, this is me. This is what I am. Here I am meditating. You know, when you were really quiet, and maybe some of you were sitting there thinking, here I am meditating, and I'm doing it very badly. <laughs> I'll never be any good. They're all much better than me. Look at them. They're so much more peaceful. And here I am, hopeless case, never be any good. Well, maybe you were having those thoughts. So you were creating a sense of who you were. But maybe you had moments when the mind was quiet and you stopped creating this me, stopped sticking these things together to make me. How was that? Your name, your nationality... Uh, your gender, your intelligence, your profession, your place in the family, all of that is totally irrelevant, just labels. So the Buddha encourages us to contemplate um, our existence and to really investigate the way that we create a sense of selfhood and to see if we can begin to dismantle that to let it go, because one of the reasons that we suffer is because of this self. In fact, most of the reasons, if not all the reasons that we suffer, are because of this self. You know, I'm me, this is me, and that's you, and I'm different from you. And we create these um, divisions. Um, you know, I'm a Theravadan Buddhist, I'm not like those other Buddhists. I'm different. I'm a nun. I'm different from the lay people. You know, we can make all, so many, so many um, divisions, barriers between people. So it's not that the labels are totally invalid, but they're not to be identified with. They're not to be clung to as an identity. They're just useful <clears throat> in terms of, of living together. You know, we know where we are um, with one another. Uh, it was interesting at tea time talking with Sister Nyana Siri, who's here, who's from Thailand, and she was saying how you know in you know in in Thai culture everybody has a kind of place you know depending on your age you know the, and you 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 treat older people in one way, younger people in another way. If you're the eldest in a family, or you have one 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 form of address, and if you're the youngest, you have another way of address. So every everybody has a has a place. But that's just a conventional reality. This is something that is, you know, it's 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 a um, a way that people relate to, to each other in a particular culture. Um, obviously, in <clears throat> uh, in in Western culture, it's a little bit different. Um, and uh, you know, there are many many different different cultural groups on the planet living in different parts of the world. And they each have their own ways of doing things, which are definitely different from um, other cultures. But these are just conventional ways of being together, based on our background, our upbringing. This is a... <clears throat> a contemplation that I think we'll be needing to do more and more over the coming time because <clears throat> you're hearing about the um or the sort of the situation with the 
with the planet and the uh, threat to the kind of balance of nature and climate and so on, you know, we <coughs> human beings are really going to have to uh, learn how to work together, <coughs> how to cooperate. It's interesting, I was contemplating this at one time and thinking, well, you know, what can we do? What can we do? You know, obviously scientists and naturalists, they can do certain things, but, you know, it's just regular human beings. What what can we do? And, um, you know, and as a Buddhist practitioner, what can I do? <clears throat> and, um, you know, because we can feel, we can feel very helpless, you know, well, there's nothing we can do really do. Maybe try and get our recycling a bit better organized. <laughs> and, uh, you know, try and... Uh, Use our, don't throw away all of our, try and keep our clothes going for longer, patch our things rather than constantly getting new things, you know, reduce the amount of consumerism that we involve ourselves with, you know, get an electric car, things like that. There are, you know, there are certain things that we, you know, on that level that we can do, but um, what else can we do? And what I, what I came to was a, an understanding that really the best thing we can do is to understand the ways that we separate ourselves from each other. Not to blame ourselves or criticize ourselves, but just to uh, consider, um, is this what I wanted to carry on doing? Is this the best thing for the planet? Or should we be learning to, to work together, to cooperate you know, with people from all different kinds of backgrounds, all different political persuasions, all different beliefs. You know, so that you don't have um, little groups that um, try to get things for me, or that are, um, you know, arguing with other groups. You know, you have, you know, the Greenpeace, and you have the World Wildlife, and you have, I don't know, all these different organizations and I'm imagining that actually they are cooperating and are figuring out ways to cooperate um, one would hope so because that's really what's needed you know, to, to pool pool our resources not such an easy thing to do not such an easy thing to do it's a lovely idea but it's not such an easy thing to do I mean even you know um, like living together in a monastic community, you know, where we're all committed to liberation, we're all committed to letting go, and letting go of selfishness and um, cooperating, supporting each other. Um, one of the things that comes up very early on is uh, a sense of me and my way, and I'm not going to do it your way. Like the first day you find yourself in the kitchen. I mean, when I was at Chithurst, with the other, there were, there were four of us. We started off together, the first four Anagari cars at Chittas in 19, 1979. And this other Anagari car telling me how to chop carrots. How dare she? <laughs> this is the way you chop carrots. And she's telling me to do it another way. Well, I'm not going to do it her way. Who does she think she is? You know, these little ways that we find to, to be different, to separate from one another. It's very strong. It's very deep-rooted. And it's not 
bad. It's not that we're a bad person for wanting to chop carrots in a particular way. What would be bad is if we you know, went to war over it. <laughs> that would be bad. That would be very unfortunate. <laughs> but it's like that. You know, people are sometimes really surprised when I tell stories about what co- what started to go on, what you know, what happened to my mind when I became a nun. I mean, I used to be very peaceful, very placid, and then when I became a nun, and people started telling me how to chop carrots, you know, I, I'd have these murderous impulses arising. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think I really just wish that person didn't exist, and you know, things like that. Quite shocking. Why was that? It was the sense of self. It was the ego. Each one of us, we have this ego that wants to exist, that wants to be separate, that doesn't want to let go, that doesn't want to cooperate. And that's on, on my terms. I'll cooperate with you if we do it my way. If, if 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 you if you if you if you pay attention to my ideas, then then we can cooperate. <clears throat> so it can be a big a big deal. This this ego, this learning how to uh, cooperate, how to let go. <clears throat> It sounds very easy. Uh, and it's uh, it's not so easy. It takes time, it takes patience, takes immense kindness, kindness towards ourselves, kindness towards this pathetic little ego that always wants to have its way, always wants to be the best, to be on top story I often tell is how I was having a discussion with another nun one time and we had a little bit of a disagreement so I said one thing and then she said something else then I said something else and then she said something else and went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and I was we were both getting more and more het up and uh, you know aroused about this thing and then suddenly I thought damn it I don't really care about this (laughs) And I stopped. I stopped. I, I, I didn't. I didn't retaliate. And uh, it was. It was quite sweet because this other person was sort of ready, ready for another, <laughs> another round, and I wasn't playing anymore. And it was just such a relief. Just, oh, I don't have to do that. It doesn't matter. It was like a letting go of the ego. For the ego, the ego was was jolly well wanting to win the argument to be on top to be the best to have the last word have you noticed how much, how important it is to have the last word and how difficult it is not to have the last <laughs> last word so um these are things that we can we can learn a lot from um and what I've found is that the more I've contemplated these things in my own practice and the kind of suffering the kind of struggle that goes on the more and and also just noticing you know that there can you know murderous rage can arise you know, impulse to do truly appalling things you know, having seen that 
in my life, in my practice, it's much more difficult to point the finger when you hear of other people doing appalling things. You know, this righteous indignation, you know, how can they possibly do that? I can understand how they can do that. I don't condone it, of course. But when you understand the struggle in your own heart, the struggle of the ego, the fear of losing something that's, that's important to us, we begin to understand the greed, the hatred, the cruelty that goes on in the world. And this can help us to begin to contemplate how to address these things as, as, we, as, as they arise. As they arise with each other, as they arise with our families, in our, in our culture, in our society, in our workplace. And on a global level, we can understand. We don't condone, but we can also support a wiser, a more compassionate uh, response to these um, conditions as they arise in our own minds. We have to start off here and then in the minds of those around us. It's a very fascinating uh, practice, very um, challenging and demanding and also very liberating because when, when we do when we are able to, to let go of our fixed view about whatever it is that we're concerned about, there's just such a wonderful sense of ease and lightness. When we learn how to not hold on in the first place, that's even more wonderful. Um, but we do, we, we will, we, we'll keep carrying, we'll keep on holding on until we're liberated, until we're enlightened, until we've really learnt the lesson. Yeah. And, you know, it may, may happen in this lifetime, it may take many lifetimes. But whenever we notice a struggle, whenever there's a, something happening in our minds or in an interpersonal relationship or about a situation, whenever we find ourselves caught in a, it shouldn't be like this, what can I do about this? A sort of feeling of stress, a feeling of tension and struggle. Whenever we notice that, then it can be helpful to have a look. What, what's this about? Where is this coming from? What am I frightened of? What do I want? So the struggle is the suffering, suffering that needs to be understood, and then the cause of the suffering. This is what we investigate. What, what is the cause? What do I want? Do I want to get something pleasant for myself? Do I want to get rid of something that I don't like? Or just get out of it altogether? Do I want to become? Do I want to assert my personality? Do I want to exist? Kamatanha, yeah. that's desire for sense pleasures. Pawadana, the desire to become, the desire to exist. This is the ego bit. And then Wipawadana, the desire not to exist, just to get out of it, not to be bothered with it at all. So suffering arises because of attaching to one or other of these different kinds of desire. And then when we, uh, when we, when we, when we really see that, then we can abandon it. We think, oh, actually, it doesn't matter. I don't need to win this argument. I don't need to get that thing. It's okay. 
And then we have that lovely arising of a peaceful feeling that comes with the cessation of suffering, letting go. And then the path, which I'll talk about another day, perhaps. So these very um, uh, simple, direct uh, teachings that the Buddha presented. I, I, I'm always amazed at how brilliantly he, he was able to analyze and formulate um, this description of our human predicament um, and the keys to, to actually liberating ourselves from the tangle of our desires, of our views, of our um, uh, ego, all of these things that just keep us bound up, tangled up, and struggling to kind of maintain some kind of uh, sense of who and what we are. And just the relief is just little by little letting go um, and finding a, a different way of being. I remember... <coughs> When I was uh, growing up, sort of teenage years and uh, so on, just the sort of real feeling of not being sure if I was going to be okay as a human being. I mean, I think we all go through this in adolescence, a sort of anxiety about becoming an adult and whether we're going to be um, okay. And, you know, gradually as the, as we begin to sort of try to find ways of uh, asserting some kind of personality, just looking for all the things we can do that are different. You know, so you have teenagers dressing in the most outrageous ways. I mean, I used to dress up. I, mean, I suppose I still dress rather outrageously. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when I, when I was in my teens, I used to do really, really weird things just to, to try and be different. And then um realizing that you know everybody in that stage of development does that and you end up all all being a bit the same <laughs> you know, following the latest fashion uh so in a way you want to be different but you also want to kind of blend in and i remember contemplating this actually when i first met the first monks the first bhikkhus that i met like ajahn sumedho had just arrived from Thailand in 1977, and there was Ajahn, Ajahn, no, Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Viradamo, uh, Ajahn Anando, and Ajahn Kemadamo, Ajahn Sujito came. Anyway, there were four or five of them, and they were all dressed exactly the same, and they all had the same hairstyle, and they all bowed together at the same time, they all chanted together, they all walked in a in a particular way, all sat in line, beautiful straight line. And yet, I felt that with each one of them, there was a sense of, 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 of um, that they were really being themselves. Um, you know, 
that that who who they were came through in spite of the the similarity of of outfit whereas as a teenager struggling so hard to be different you ended up all the same i don't know if i've quite made my point but anyway it was it was interesting to 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 contemplate this so when when i became a nun i remember looking at the at the mechis in thailand this was the very first time i went to thailand I was, I was fairly newly ordained as an anagari kai, as in white, and I remember seeing the nuns in Thailand. I mean, the first four of us, we all managed to be completely different in the way we dressed <laughs> and the way we did things. We, we were very sort of at some sort of subliminal level, very 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 determined to stay different, and and we were. And then I went to Thailand and I saw the nuns there, and they were remarkably. Um, uniform. I mean, they they all wore their robes. The robes were beautifully clean and very neat, and uh, they all sort of sat in a very neat row. A lot of them. I mean, well, maybe maybe it was about eight of them sitting in a neat row and doing everything in, in perfect order. Uh, at least that's how it appeared to me. And I I remember just thinking, oh, Chandasiri, just this sinking feeling of you're going to have to be like one of them. Just another nun. <laughs> no, no longer special, like one of the four special ones, but just another nun, somewhere in a long, long line of nuns. This letting go. Uh, anyway, that was just kind of uh, one of those things that I noticed. So I think I've probably talked enough just to give a, a little bit of um, a hint of how the Buddha's teachings can work in our own lives and contemplation and uh, an encouragement just to really um, observe over these days, to observe change, to observe the struggle. And you'll have plenty of, I mean, I'm sure we've, yeah, you'll have plenty of struggle. We'll all have plenty of struggle. <laughs> Big struggles and little struggles, uh, minute struggles, um, they'll, they'll, they'll arise. And so to contemplate them, don't try to get rid of them too quickly, but take an interest. It's all right to, to have suffering. The important thing is to learn from it, to investigate it. And then the third one, anatta, not self. And just contemplate the different ways that uh, the, the ego tries to assert itself things that are important to you and how they're important to you. So I'd like to just offer these thoughts for your contemplation this evening. <laughs> 